Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. To that end we get guests on the show to talk about writing and sometimes I talk about writing myself. Sometimes I look at the first pages sent in by listeners of their novels and stories and suggest ways they might make them a little bit better but today I am going to do a writing ramble which if you've never listened to the show before this probably isn't your best place to start uh, because they are unedited unscripted completely off the top of the dome chats about writing I say chats but they're monologues quite clearly you are not in dialogue with me uh, except in the most general sense of listeners sending me le- letters and it's really lovely to hear from listeners but but obviously we are not just not a chat except in the old sense of the kind of presidential fireside chat where I invite you in and then exercise the ancient cr- art of raconteurship talking about things except that I haven't planned what I'm going to talk about it's just a way for me to do episodes where I'm a little bit more off the cuff uh, maybe they have the virtue of authenticity, but the, the point is, if this is the first episode that you ever listened to of Death of a Thousand Cuts, first of all, welcome. But secondly, uh, I would not recommend this as being uh, your pipeline into the podcast. I, I think, if anything, uh, it is likely to um, salt the earth uh, to ensure that nothing ever grows again in terms of your listening to this podcast, because uh, they tend to be uh, r- rather circumlocutionary they tend to be rather long and they don't always reach a satisfying conclusion either they're sort of more personal and I try to steer the great chuntering chugging cruise liner of my monologue towards topics tangentially related to writing and the creation of stories but we don't always get there and I know that some listeners do enjoy these episodes some listeners have written and said that they're their favourites but they are certainly an acquired taste and I would not expect you to join uh, here so you know my suggestion for ways to start the podcast is is to go and listen to one of the episodes where I look at the first page of a listener's story and I give feedback they are very crunchy in terms of editing and suggesting ways of making a story better and they tend to be full of practical tips with very concrete examples I know that a lot of writers find them quite helpful as a way in you can listen to uh, the interviews I do with various authors. You know, they're some of my favourite episodes to record just because I get to talk to somebody. And I'm, I know what I think about writing. Actually, maybe that's not strictly speaking true. I, I know 75% of what I think about writing and, and other things I learn by having to articulate them on the show and when I'm teaching creative writing. Um, but I don't know what other writers think about writing, and so those are always really interesting to me for me to chat to other writers. And of course, you, th- there are multiple uh, episodes, uh, 148 in total, that are part of my two free writing courses I did, the 100-Day Writing Challenge and the um, eight-week uh, eight, Couch to 80K Writing Bootcamp. Um, they're all a lot online for free, and if you want to do a kind of writing course, 
you can go and do them completely free they're just there for you to download and they take 10 minutes a day but this is going to be me talking about something to do with writing so look i i haven't posted episodes in two weeks so i went away and i taught my first creative writing retreat for like two years um a fortnight ago and thus i was away and i had tried to like create like i i recorded an episode for that week but then i didn't really account for getting back and then having to record something and feeling absolutely wiped out by teaching a mere four days of creative writing but i was on from around 8 a.m in the morning till about 10 p.m at night every day and as you can imagine, I do sort of throw myself into teaching. I <laughs> I mean, I could be a horrible person in, in real life with no interest in uh, creative writing whatsoever. And, and, and I, may, I may well be, um, but in terms of teaching creative writing, certainly I maintain the facade of honest engagement and friendliness. Certainly that is, <laughs> certainly the, the, the mask rarely slips uh, during those times. And... Um, I was teaching a group of sick formers and we went to a house in the country and did creative writing workshops every morning and then one-to-one -one sessions all afternoon with the people who weren't with me going off and writing and then in the evening we had readings and it's the first time I've done it in ages and I really, really got so much out of doing it. Um, but but I was exhausted by the end of it. I just, I I don't know if anyone would feel like that or if it's particularly me that doing that kind of thing wipes me out for like the next few days. I'm just good. I, I, I came home on the, on, after the final day and I just, I slept for hours in the day. I was absolutely exhausted and, um, <clears throat> It might be because of this pandemic we've had that has meant I've had very, very little contact with human beings. Certainly not 20 plus strangers in a house. You know, everyone had had, we were like our own little bubble and I'd been double jabbed and I did my, everyone did tests before we met up. So it was all it, and then we were isolated in the middle of the countryside. So it was all in terms of safety procedures that were uh, observed it was it was it was as you know as, as safe as anything like that can be but it was just the most people i've been around and the most social stimulation i've had for several years and um that was a lot you know it was a lot and it's on something i really care about which is teaching creative writing and then you're dealing with lots of different people who have lots of very very equally interesting but diverse concerns some people want to write poetry some people want to write life writing about themselves you know about their lives some people want to write fiction some people want to write comedy some people want to write historical some people want to write romance people want to write all these different diverse things and you either just don't turn up for some of them you know you just go i'm but well i'm just not going to engage or you care about it 
and then you feel wiped out at the end. You feel like you've had your brain scooped out. And the upshot of all of this is, and then I've been doing my, uh, and then and then I've been doing signing off on the, uh, the proof reading stage, the copy editing stage, I guess it's called, of my book that's out next year. So that's when somebody, so I got back and immediately I had all them to look through. And so that's uh, when you write a book, there's a stage after, uh, you'll have multiple stages of editing normally. You'll send it off to your agent before, you know, before you've submitted it. And I guess not everyone has this relationship, but my agent is incredibly conscientious and hardworking and will like read through everything, give me loads of feedback. So when it finally gets submitted, if it does get submitted, um, it's going to drop from the highest height possible. You know, it's going to be as good as it can be before it gets submitted. So and I think I, I, I think certainly some level of editorial feedback from an agent is normal. So she'll give me feedback. I'll incorporate that. I'll probably send it back to her. She'll give me another round of feedback. She sent it to her assistant who gave me another round of feedback. So that had already been through multiple versions of that. Then it went to my editor when they accepted it and then I'd submitted, she then gave me a bunch of feedback. I resubmitted. She gave me another bunch of feedback. I resubmitted. Then there was another editor that it went to who gave a bunch of feedback and then it was, and then I resubmitted and then and there was another sort of like, and each of these iterations gets sort of progressively um, more dirtly and nitpicky and fine-tuny. You know, at first they're just like, there can be whole chunks that you're taking out. Uh, late, you know, I cut 50,000 words at one point. And then later on, it kind of gets down to what you might have in each chapter. And then later, it's kind of getting down to the sentence level. And then it went to this copy editing stage where someone who is generally sort of hired, well, certainly in all the experiences I've had with a couple of publishers, someone who's a freelancer who gets hired from outside the company, who looks at your book and, 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 and a lot of what they're doing is and I just if 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 I wore a hat I would take it off to them but I, I really have no words to to eulogize what incredible skill and powers of concentration it must take to be a copy editor. And I'm sure there are some tricks, but like there's only so much you can use because they're doing things like checking whether like you've accidentally italicized a comma at the end of it, whether whether a, a speech mark is italicized or not whether your book is fitting the style guidelines for the publisher so do they use curly quotation marks or do they use straight quotation marks things like that have you used an m dash or an n dash and going through every instance suggesting changes and my book had over 400 end notes which my copy editor had to divide because I didn't know how to divide them into chapters for, you know, have a differently numbered end notes for each chapter. So she had to do that. I also hadn't worked out whether a foot, uh, an end note, the little number should go inside or outside of the full stop or comma, you know, whether you put it next to the word or next to the punctuation. So apparently I just... I just thought, you know, what could be the least irritating thing I'll do? I'll just um, hedge my bets and do half of them inside and half of them outside. So she had to go through all of that 
But then that copy editor will also then go through your work and still suggest lots of changes in terms of clarity. They sometimes do fact checking. They sometimes do, you know, they're checking, they're checking that you spot the name right of everyone in the book. Sometimes they'll make flag up notes for the legal team. Like if you're particularly, you know, if you're writing fiction, it might just be, have you quoted from something that might be under copyright, like a lyric or something like that. You'd be surprised. It, it didn't really affect me when I was doing the honours, things like that, because it's set in 1935 and I wanted to write the book. And I remember when I said this out loud during a debate on language and the person I was debating against, believe it or not, was Will Self. And he rolled his eyes and gasped and moaned at the pretentiousness of this. And I, I think it takes <laughs> quite a lot of... I, I would say I'm going to use the word skill to be publicly accused of pretentiousness, of literary pretentiousness at that by Will Self. But um, I tried to write the honours in a way that it could have theoretically been written in 1935. That is, no neologisms that come after 1935, no uses of vocabulary that come after 1935, no nods forward to things that are going to come historically. Uh, although, of course, you know, I had lots of sort of resonances that you can't help knowing if you live in the future, but one to have no and and, and 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 kind of cleaving to the obscenity laws of the time. So uh, there was an f bomb in there that is blanked out, and I was just kind of interested in in, in playing around with that. Also, as a I, I think restrictions are always really, and I will get back to the point I was making. Don't worry, I know I'm sort of like opening I often in these talks open a set of parentheses and then never close them and it can be agony if you're listening and now I, that's an, another set of parentheses I've opened and now that's another one and now that's another one and so on and so on and we could just spiral down into a, an endless whirlpool of nested statements at the centre of which I guess we would pop out at the other side of the event horizon in some kind of parallel uh, universe of ultimate connected understanding that's what I'm always hoping when I do these nested uh, statements these kind of parenthetical remarks is that, that ultimately will kind of hit on something but the reason I did it and the reason I was interested in it was because I think restriction feeds all creativity and I, I just get irritated when there are historical bits of historical fiction that have like a character being going you mark my words Herr Hitler will never and uh, invade the Sudetenland and 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 we're supposed to think that character is like an idiot or a nincompoop because, of course, we know that Hitler did, and so what a buffoon! And it's not it's not very conducive to empathy. We kind of like see characters being very, sort of mired in their time in a way that can make us feel rather superior. It, it lends itself to satire. It lends itself to the kind of caricaturing of people who exist within their time period it makes me us feel superior to them and it makes them seem like little sort of dirtily set pieces that we kind of gaze down upon like like 
busybody gods. And I think if you read a lot of literature of the time, there are some bit, there are some stuff, you know, you look at something like uh, George Orwell's Keep the Aspidistra Flying. And it has, in fact, it's up on my shelf here. And I, I just think there's some bits in it. He wrote this. This came out in what, like 1930? 1936. of which 2,194 were sold. Most of the remainder were lost as the result of an, an air raid. Uh, so it didn't actually do very well when it came out. Um, I'm not slating anyone who only sells 2,000 copies, but like this is George Orwell we're talking about after all. Um, but it's it has some bits in it that are... You know, the main characters of this guy, Gordon Comstock... This, this misanthropic uh, poet who works in a bookshop. Uh, and I, I suspect, you know, Orwell was slightly modelling on himself. Uh, but I, I love... But it's got this incredibly... It's got bits... Obviously, it was written before the Blitz, right? That's, this is my point, right? It was written before the Blitz. It was written before Britain was bombed, although there were certainly fears of mass bombing right and there are bits in it that sat that the, the you know looking back they feel they feel like they were written to they feel like they were written by someone after the war you know i, I think a lot of people because it kind of got republished after post-war people some people forget that it was written before and because it feels like we're supposed to be ironically well listen to this I'll, I'll, rather than me giving you v vague examples let me listen read this this paragraph so you know gordon has uh here we go gordon watched them go they were just byproducts the throwouts of the money god. All over London by tens of thousands, draggled old beasts of that description, creeping like unclean beetles to the grave. He gazed out at the graceless street. At this moment it seemed to him that in a street like this, in a town like this, every life that is lived must be meaningless and intolerable. The sense of disintegration, of decay, that is endemic in our time was strong upon him. Somehow it was mixed up with the ad posters opposite, he looked now with more seeing eyes at those grinning, yard-wide faces. After all, there was more there than mere silliness, greed and vulgarity. Roland Butter grins at you, seemingly optimistic, with a flash of false teeth. But what is behind the grin? Desolation, emptiness, prophecies of doom. For can you not see, if you know how to look? that behind that slick self-satisfaction, that tittering, fat-bellied triviality, there is nothing but a frightful emptiness, a secret despair, the great death wish of the modern world, suicide pacts, heads stuck in gas ovens in lonely maisonettes, French letters and amen pills, and the reverberation of future wars, enemy aeroplanes flying over London, 
the deep, threatening hum of the propellers, the shattering thunder of the bombs. It is all written in Roland Butter's face. So, like, Gordon Comstock is kind of... He, he ends up, you know, more than once kind of... wishing for the coming of the Blitz. And, and, and the great desolation of London, which is plastered with advertising hoardings. But if you, for that sounds, you know, it, with its resonances of the Blitz, and it, it, it sounds like a piece of historical fiction that it was written, but it was written, he's writing about his contemporary time. And he can, and I think that's what makes it really good. So you can have resonances, the point I'm saying now, now to sort of walk things back to where I was getting at. The reason that I did it is because I just didn't want us to feel smugly looking down on the characters, uh, but in their world. And the fact that a lot of them weren't, as tends to be the cliche in historical fiction set in the interbellum period between 1918 and 1939, between the wars, they tend to all be sort of hand they tend to either be Nazis or worrying about the coming of the Nazis, right? There's, there's always a closet or not so closet fascist. And we're be, we're sort of having pushed on us this idea that we thought it couldn't happen here, but look how close Britain came to actually being a, a fascist state. So there's always a, a closet fascist who thinks fascism is brilliant. And that makes us feel smug because, uh, you know, they don't know that Hitler's bad like we do you know that's that's the kind of implication right um and or or, or the, this idea that we, we just get to feel it's supposed it's so I, I think they're often framed like ah but you see like Britain could have quite easily become a, a fascist state but actually we're supposed to feel morally superior to that character because you know we we would never we, we we would never be thinking that that would be a reasonable thing to say out loud and they are so we actually feel distant from them. i think it has often often has the opposite effect the kind of it, it couldn't happen here thing actually makes us look at it and go well i'm definitely not like that character so there's nothing for me to reflect on here at all because these people are so different to me and actually if you look at stuff at the time what, what's going on is a, a lot of red scares and fears of communist invasion and uh, socialist scares and the daily mail were really big on pushing those kind of things and i've talked about this on the podcast before and 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 they didn't you know people didn't know that there was definitely going to be a war and if so where it would come from some people suggested that there would be some people predicted it and, and others really really didn't like you can cherry pick after the facts right but so i just that, that's what i wanted to do and, and this is what will self took the the piss out of me for in that debate but now where was what was my original oh my gosh what was my original point that i was that i was farting on about what was i what was i talking about but what was the original what was the original thing about uh restrictions and and writing and all this I don't I don't know actually. I've I've gone so far away from what I was talking about that I can't remember why I brought up restrictions and my own book. And that's completely fine because uh, I whoa, Oh, this is wow. Whoa, there we are. I I I've got no idea why I was talking about all that. And this is the thing, right? So I'm Oh, because 
I was talking. Ah, oh, and there we are. I was talking about copy editing. So all that the copy editor had to do is check that things in, in the honours was check that things. God, there we are. I'm back. See, this isn't edited. This isn't planned. All the copy editor had to do was check that things existed at the time. So, like, I mentioned the card game, oh, hell, if you've never... No, I, so I mentioned the card net game, a card game called Speculation Whist. There is no such game as Speculation Whist. And that was something that the copy editor pointed out. I said, I found it online. We did a Google search. The only example I could find was me mentioning it in a forum. There is, I, as far as I know, there is no such game as Speculation Whist. Oh, hell, oh, hell is a wish a game of the whist family where you bid each round on how many tricks you think you're going to you're going to take it's by the way it is brilliant it's genuinely one of only a few card games played with a normal deck i suppose my top three games that i enjoy playing with a traditional sort of 40 54 54 card deck would be Oh Hell, Cribbage, which I accept is not like an amazing game, but I really enjoy playing it with my dad and I, I enjoy the back and forth of it. It's, I find it very fun. Uh, oh Hell, Cribbage and probably Texas Hold'em. I know that is like a very down the middle of the road popular game. It's a bit mainstream, isn't it? But I think that there's a reason why Texas Hold'em has become uh, popular, apart from that is variant of poker that is most congenial to... Uh, spectator as a spectator sport anyway so i'm getting off the point and and it's it by the way it's no it's no uh it's no coincidence whatsoever that the new book i'm working on at the moment no idea if it will become a feasible project is about games and my interest in them um, and that's why i'm kind of on on that but um so i ended up putting down oh god i had canasta in there for a while and it, and it turned out canasta which i just imagine that some card games are like ancient ancient things right but canasta 1939 can't have that in there so i ended up using oh hell the because the first use of it i think in text is probably first attested use is probably only 1936 but I can't imagine that it was anthologized in a book without being a sort of well-played game before then. So I imagine that a character in conversation could suggest a game of Oh Hell. Some groups at the time would have um, bowdlerized it to Oh Well. Um, but it is an excellent game. If you ever get a chance to play Oh Hell, if you ever play something like Liar's Dice, kind of opera or the um, or Skull, it's kind of exists in the same play space as them um and it's like a terrific combination of like a nice simple trick-taking game but with a little bit of maths and uh, social deduction it's a it's a good it's a good old it's a good old game that um but there were you know that was reasonably simple right there weren't there, there was like a tiny bit of fact checking uh there was quite a lot of making my sentences make more sense right but for the most part if i quoted anything it was out of copy it was in the public domain you know if i quoted from books or whatever because i'd said you know i wasn't going to use chapter titles that were referencing something that came after uh everything that i quoted from is just in the public domain and so anyone could use it but the ice house is set in 2008 2009 right so 
then I was using cultural references and bits and pieces that that are very much in the public domain. I had to change a chapter title that I think it was I think I called one chapter title I called one chapter Fear Not of Men Because Men Must Die. So that is eleven words, I think. Fear not of men because men must die. It's eight words. And the, the copy editor correctly ascertained that it was a a uh, Mos Def lyric, and which I wasn't trying to plagiarise it. By the way, I was just you know my chapter titles are often taken from books and poems and things like that. It was supposed to be an allusion to that, right? Uh, and maybe it was EMI that owned the rights, but basically, contact my publishers contacted them. And we were quoted £660. And we were also limited the print run we were allowed to do um, before having to pay, what, for eight words. And I was just like, I'm not... I don't think that's a good use of our money. I don't think that's a reasonable... I don't think that's a reasonable way to think about copyright law anyway. It's not like people are going to not listen to the song because I, anyway so I, I took it out so it, it changes later on and then when you're writing non-fiction things need a legal read because you might be talking about in fact you almost certainly are talking about real people and real events and so that's another thing that you know the book's gone gone through various things where it's like do we need to change this person's name to give them their pr- privacy you send a bunch of stuff that you've written off to the you might well send stuff off to contributors for them to check that you that they're happy with what you've written uh, because i'm not doing I, i'm not writing like gotcha journalism sort of expo- exposing corrupt politicians so it's a little bit different to i know sort of some journalists would be aghast at the idea that you send an interview off to the interviewee for them to approve of well it's not exactly for them to approve of, but like a lot of people I speak, I'm speaking to in the latest book are experts on their subject and it's not really about their personality. So, you know, I'm not sending it off to them for them to sort of gloss and kind of feather their own nest and go, oh, you haven't made me look cool here. That's not really the issue. It's just like, have I misunderstood something? Did I mishear something that you said when you transcribe it? Because I want them to be able to present the best case of what they said and I want to convey accurately I don't want to miss convey their point or maybe they made a mistake when they were talking to me maybe they talked about a particular study and actually got that a bit wrong maybe there's something clarifying that they can add now they might get back to me and say I don't like how you've described me here and I decide not to change that but I think it's worth you know where I don't have any particular vested interest in misrepresenting them where I'm often getting people on as kind of like experts I think it is totally reasonable for to run stuff part part by people because you, your whole purpose is is to and also they do they're, they're helping you for free like why would I deliberately you know <laughs> I don't know here's like a bunch of buffoons that I spoke to like it doesn't help anyone like it's it's not ever my goal and, and actually a lot of people didn't have any changes to make whatsoever some people had clarifying statements they thought i could add outside their quotes nobody asked me to change 
their actual dialogue that they'd said to me. So, but I'm really glad I did it because also you're just kind of checking in with people and I don't know, like I, I there's probably like, I, I'm not the person to talk about the legal side of creative writing and particularly non-fiction on this podcast. Maybe that's something I can get someone on at some stage to talk about because I guess there are, you know, people, some people write, you know, political books and what, what, what have you, where they have contributors who maybe have a very vested interest in saying something that's nonsensical or saying that something is nonsensical or saying something that's false or defamatory um i don't know i don't i'd love to that's a really good idea actually i should speak to i should get someone on who's written about contentious subject and talk about the legal side of things and sometimes it's not just legal as well sometimes you know you speak to someone about something sensitive and then later on they get a bit of buyer's remorse you know and then they might have said some great sort of juicy emotive stuff but what if they feel afterwards that they wish they hadn't and they feel that maybe if it gets published they're worried that it's they don't want the attention or they might feel regretful now like i'll be completely honest with you the first impulse inside me is this just thing screaming no just the only thing that matters is the book and, and 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 they're wrong and they're being obstructive and they shouldn't have spoken to you in the first place if they didn't want to do that and screw them um and i'm not not very sort of super proud of that impulse uh i th- I, th- I think it's i think it's true if you know like a politician agrees to speak to you says a lot of stuff off the cuff after a few beers that ends up not being particularly conducive to their electability later on. You know, if you expose someone's corruption or whatever, that's fine. But, you know, if, if someone opens up to you and then later on they worry about it and, and, and you and you spent all this... T- I mean, it's a, it's, a real, it's a real bugger if you've done a load of work on it. This didn't happen to me, by the way, but I'm just it must be a real bugger if you've done a load of work on it and then someone contacts you and says, look, I'm really sorry, but I don't feel comfortable. I think from a legal standpoint, I don't know what the law is. I imagine if you have spoken to them beforehand and said, look, I'm explicitly speaking to you about this. Do I have your consent? If you speak to me, you know, know that stuff will be used or may well be used in the book. If they withdraw their consent later, is the, you know, are they do they have a legal leg to stand on? I don't know that they do. Uh, they might do I don't know but like in the end I mean do you I think you just like end up coming back to like what kind of person do you want to be and why are you writing and I think if somebody if somebody feels like I think it's it's impossible to exist in the world and to write things without the potential of being accused of doing harm you know, making mistakes. I think we try and reduce that um, within reasonable boundaries. But I kind, I kind of think that kind of thing is exactly why you try and do as much beforehand to set expectations with someone to say, look, like, if I, I, you know, I don't know if the book's going to be published, but and I don't know if I'm going to use this because sometimes I'd speak to people and it just isn't right for the book or I make cuts. But, like, you you need to be aware that if I do, you, you know, publish the book, then this might be in it and are you okay with that? 
you know, I can change, I can, you know, change your name in it or something if you'd feel more comfortable with that, but it's totally up to you. I just want you to know you don't have to go through with this if you don't want. That's kind of fine, right? That, that, that I think, reduces... Well, it, it makes it more likely, I suppose, that the person experiences their buyer's remorse up front, you know, before you go through the work. That That's the ideal, right? If, you, if they might have that, then you want to sort of let them have it early before you do loads of work into it. That would be that you, you want to make sure that you don't just have someone's compliance not even just their consent. I think consent is too weak for those kind of like stories. But their wholehearted, enthusiastic participation, you know, that's that's the ultimate thing, really. Uh, and you're probably not going to, I mean, and you're not going to get that and you're not going to need it when you're asking, you're phoning someone up to like fact check Oh, uh, there's like a, a thing on kind of gut microbiota that I need to just check whether I've read this paper right. Someone's not going to be like, I believe in this project so much. I'm going to, but they're also less likely to get back to you and go, oh, you know, I helped you fact check that thing. Can you like cut me out? Because I, because it just is without consequence, right? So I think like with super low consequence things, you don't need to go through that. But um, in any case, those are all the kind of things that I've been going through and that they were checking. And some of them are like, some of them are like, legal things i think especially whenever you're talking about court cases they want the legal team to read through just to make sure you have accurately represented the court case everyone gets like a little bit about it anything where you're quoting from something there's oh there's always the potential that you're gonna have to cut it out or change it anything where you're quoting a, a, a person that you spoke to that one needs checking uh I, I, again, I don't know the exact legal because I've got like whenever I spoke to people, I recorded the conversations. So there'd never be a situation where I would be accused of misquoting someone where I couldn't completely back it up with just the tape of them saying it. Right. But again, that's not really the point of what I was was doing. Right. Like. My point isn't. To arm myself against which i don't anticipate but you know to, to to basically make sure no one i've got power over people the, the 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 idea is to make is to make people enthusiastic and willing participants in the process really and something that they've helped me with anyway so that's all stuff that i've been going through in the past couple of weeks and sorting out while working on starting off on this new book about games another non-fiction book so i've been away for, from fiction for a while and honestly, it's been weird and I don't want to like turn this all into Tim Clare's sort of mental health experiences yet again. But I do feel sad that I've been procrastinating like crazy, like absolute mad. I've been struggling to sit down and write. I've been engaging in what I know to be some addictive avoidance behaviours you know which i've been justifying because i'm doing a book about games so i've been like making loads of i've never played magic the gathering before the last month but i've been like obsessively making decks and finding new cards and looking for people to play with and 
I think it's all going, you know, it's all ultimately part of the book in a way, because I think I'm learning some things about myself and I've got some suspicions about, I've got, uh, well, not suspicions, that's, that's, that's too loaded. I've got, let's just say I'm pulling at some threads to do with, you know, a central question of the book from the personal side of the story I'm really interested in games and communities, why, why, how games bring us together, how there's this kind of like yearning to be together after, you know, as the pandemic has, you know, gone on for so long. We've been so starved of each other's company and this, and not computer games, but I'm talking about tabletop games. I'm talking about things where we sit around the table and different communities of people who play together around the world and why human beings play games, you know, what and how it helps us connect and why do I care about games so much as a guy who's 40 years old and still wants to play like is that really the business do we live in a world where it's where it's you know where it's moral to play when there are so there's so much at stake is it you know a waste of our lives is it frivolous is it is it unethical is it somehow you know is the time for games over is it a form of arrested development? You know, am I running away from something? Why do... So a second question of the book, I think, certainly as I conceive it, um, at the moment, is why do I care about games so much? And why do, why am I so obsessed with games? And <laughs> you think, when you throw yourself into any piece of non-fiction on a subject you care about, you're not always ready for where it will take you and where you'll end up. And... I was talking to the group when I went to teach and I, I said I, I said this to them and I said, look, I didn't know where any of my books, I think if you throw yourself sincerely in something, you don't always know where you're going to end up and it's not always where you think. If I hadn't written my first book, We Can't All Be Astronauts, I wouldn't, I don't, it, it was how ultimately like I met my now wife because she read the book and it, resonated with her and then she contacted me and that we ended up you know we, we ended up getting together and and now I've got a daughter and I never sat down to write that book thinking I could really do with being a dad you know uh so I guess I'm gonna do a pitch and send it to my agent like that's not what I was trying to do obviously but when you follow something sincerely I think sometimes it just takes it changes your life it has to really um i'm writing my new book which uh i think you know we haven't announced yet but i've said on the podcast before is going to be called uh coward i think the full title is coward why we're anxious and what we can do about it is a book about anxiety and the science of anxiety and my experiences of anxiety and going in search of cures um and the most modern answers to anxiety and where it comes from and what we can do about it exactly as the subtitle implies um i didn't know where that was you know going to lead me i didn't know what it was going to do to my mental health and not all of it positive although the long-term effects have been massively positive in sort of the end of October will mark 
two years since my last panic attack and I used to have panic attacks you know when I started out this podcast I was having panic attacks every week and often like three a day in kind of big clusters um you know just absolute paralyzing on the floor screaming fits that went on and on and on anxiety controlled every bit of my life and i you know i'm not free from anxiety i it still affects me and i still do lots of things to manage it including procrastinating you know there's ways that you can not feel anxious but still be absolutely ruled by and i recognize that Uh and there's no way of there's no way of actually leading, leading and leading an anxiety-free life. There's no reason to because it is a natural human thing. What what we're looking at is um, managing and engaging with and transforming pathological and excessive anxiety, inappropriate in terms of situations and inappropriate in terms of degree. Uh, but. You know, writing that book and working on it has changed my life. You know, you can imagine from going from essentially being disabled by the severity of one's anxiety. Essentially, all the things I couldn't, I just couldn't do because of panic attacks in terms of how it just completely chained me to the house. To just not, I just don't have them at all. And I'd had them for over a decade at that frequency. Like, they just felt like a completely inescapable part of my life. And I'm now, last last week was the, marked the nine years since I had a drink and I've been teetotal and giving up alcohol, you know, it accelerated my anxiety, if anything, because what happens is you suddenly have to deal with the stuff or you you have to start dealing with the stuff that the that the alcohol was a way of managing you know it's a bad way of managing it but it was it was still it was still you know you're doing it to help try and manage those symptoms so you know i that's these are the things i've been working on and i think working on this new book about games i'm getting the sense that it's taking me down a route you know you go why am i so obsessed with games why do i you know why do i find some elements of socializing really really paralyzingly difficult why do i find engaging with humans so much easier around a table with rules why do i get these obsessions these monomanias where i just can't stop doing the same thing over and over and over and over and i can't i find it really hard to engage with people who aren't interested in having that one conversation about at the moment it's about magic the gathering before that was pokemon um you know i can't it's all i want to do um why do why did you know why when i went to the edinburgh book festival did i sit in the green room with my this must have been what was it 2015 maybe so I just remember sitting in that green room at the Edinburgh Book Festival with my little packet of Netrunner cards. My little de- I had a deck of Netrunner cards and I was just shuffling them, sat on a seat on my own, desperate for someone to come up to me and ask me about Netrunner, <laughs> to talk to me about it because I, I, I couldn't make eye contact with people. 
and then my friend Dan was up in Edinburgh and I went to play Never Alone with him in his flat and then and then I went home and that was all I could do was just what 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 was I thinking what was I thinking I know I, well I was thinking that I didn't I felt felt scared and I all I wanted to do was play like it's addictive and it's strange games and I, anyway, I, I'm going down a certain road and I'm certainly going to have some, I'm going to check some things and, and we'll, we'll see where it leads me. Sorry to be vague on that. I just don't, sort of don't want to preempt it in a way. But um, some people have made some suggestions to me and um, about that. And, 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 you know, I've been speaking to loads of new people. Anyway, look, the bottom line is this, this last couple of weeks, I've really struggled to get off my arse and actually do work. I've done a little bit on the new book like a bit of like grinding out like about I've done like about 1200 words I think but I'm finding it hard I'm finding it hard to set up interviews with people I'm finding it hard to get moving and I'm scared you know I'm I'm, I'm scared again I'm scared of that I won't be able to do fiction anymore I, I feel itchy and gross when I think about me doing creative writing I feel like I'm stupid at it I feel like I'm not good I look at sentences and I don't like them. I look at the stuff I was doing for the podcast, that fit the novel, and I just feel like I'm not up to the job, you know? And it's funny that I should phrase it like that, you know, that I don't go, this piece isn't up to the job, but I, I think about it as me not being up to the job, and I think that's super unhelpful. So what to do about it? Well, here's what I think. Yesterday, I got my running stuff on after like a month of not really doing any exercise, partly because of hay fever, partly because of the heat, partly because my knee's been dicky and I just went out and did like my 6k run. Because I, I, you may know, but like a month or so, uh, a month and a bit ago, I did my first marathon. And so I did, I did a run and that felt good. Um, my knee did hurt a bit during it and afterwards but it felt good and I've been start doing you know a little bit of exercise like uh, at home like trying to do start my daily press-ups with two days off a week but doing daily press-ups and daily squats things like that like small things and and the first day that I did them I felt better at having done them in the first day I did them I struggle look I don't understand don't want to sound gross. You, fortunately, you don't ever have to share a room with me. But I struggle with like personal hygiene things in a, in a way a lot of nerds do. Remembering to shower, remembering to change my clothes, making the effort to clean my teeth. I I know that sounds gross, and I feel shame about it. But I struggle with it, and so I've been just trying to remember to clean my teeth twice a day, and to have regular shower and, and you know to shave things like that to get the washing you know I did a lot of house tidying over the weekend I tidied my office things like that and I'm trying to start where I can control you know after we finish this and I know I say this before but I'll say it again I'm going to do 10 minutes of creative writing just a free write because it only takes tiny little interventions just to you do not have to compensate for all your accumulated sins which entirely exist in your head anyway, but you do not have to do that, and you can't. All you can do is say, 
because and what we imagine right it's like i know i've got to hold on to the guilt because the guilt is what's going to help me turn the ship around if i let go of the guilt i'm just going to go into free fall that is the only thing tethering me to some kind of feeling of responsibility in my experience it has never ever successfully done that all we you can do is say oh well cut the cords holding you to that shame and guilt and then try and do as uh tim tim pitchell dr tim pitchell said when he came on the show to chat about procrastination so what's my next what you know what's my next move what's my next good thing what's my next step it might be opening the laptop it might be walking and finding a pen it might be finding your notebook and placing it on the table you need um it's like you don't need to think step 10 steps ahead you don't need to work out your whole day you don't have to make a series of promises to yourself by all means get a calendar by all means use your phone's calendar you know use google calendars or whatever and note some things down by all means um, open a page in a notebook and write down a quick to-do list that has just got some really simple things that you need to remember like putting a load of washing in the washing machine and hanging it up as things you can tick off so you don't have to hold those things in your head and then go oh no i forgot them phoning someone people's birthdays by all means put them down to ease the cognitive burden on you but all you can ever do is take the next positive step and that's always going to be tiny it really is so i can do a set of press-ups i can do a couple of chin-ups i can drink a glass of water i know these are tiny self-care things and it sounds it sounds so twee that you think can't possibly make a difference but trust me it's the only thing that can make a difference i'm gonna have a cold shower i'm i'm like i'm i know some people tease me for kind of being a bit of a zealot on this it's it's not a miracle cure but it is an intervention and it's a small intervention it can help you know i am going to send a nice text to a friend saying hello you know reach out I am going to set a timer for 10 minutes and do some cleaning in my whatever living space is mine. I'm going to think about all the things that I've got to do next week that aren't very fun, but they're just kind of like admin, or if it's house admin, sometimes you can use the portmanteau padmin, and um, I'm just going to write them down so I don't have to spend energy trying to hold them in my head in a kind of holding pattern and recalling them they're just going to be there all of these things are things you can do and i think they just they just ease the burden and they can just start changing the flavor and the tone and the mood of your week you know i've been thinking oh i've got to do the podcast and then i've got to do a bit of writing and then it's just easier to go online and start looking at magic decks you know it's just easier to make myself a bowl of cereal it's just easier to start watching videos on youtube because they don't require any thinking and they're not painful like and the fear of failure builds up in you and i just think right we've got to start small we're going to start small because i i don't want to go on feeling this way and i think realizing I, this isn't making me happy and then and 
I'm I'm going to be picking myself back up and trying to make the best out of a bad job for for the rest of my life. I suspect you know, like, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean life is managed, not cured. There will be. That seems to me very unlikely that I'm ever going to reach this sort of perfect point of being absolutely on top of all my responsibilities as a as an adult human being. And it's a very emotional time, you know. It's it's my wife's birthday this week. My daughter is graduating from preschool this week, and then she's going to be starting school in September. It's been a rough couple of years, you know. It's been hard. So we can we can love ourselves and forgive ourselves, right? I, I mean, God, if I didn't love and forgive myself at least some of the time, I would never be able to make this podcast because <laughs> it's so rough around the edges and random and cobbled together. And, you know, if I was starting to think of myself as a content creator who's got to, like, build an audience and do all this and do that, I, I just it would I couldn't do it because it would never meet those standards. It's just something that I've always done for me because I love it, because I care about creative writing, because I I love stories, because I love making things and stories. I, I love storytelling. I love hearing other people's stories. I, I love inventing. I love living in these imaginary worlds. I just think it's so wonderful. I think language is so incredible. And those are all genuine, genuine, genuine feelings I have. And I love exploring things I don't understand. And I love finding stuff out about myself. And then I love the fact that I do actually have kind of cobbled together a career out of it. That's it. So there's loads of positives. And, um, you know, I don't know if hearing all this is kind of getting you anywhere. I don't know where you are. You might be, you mean, you might be doing great. But I just think it's a time when people are finding like that, you know, that suddenly getting through the week feels like wading through toffee and they can't understand why they're tired or they're demotivated or they can't concentrate I, I just think that the world has been crazy for a couple of years like absolutely bananas and and because it's been going on long enough we it feels normalized and we forget that we're in this kind of like maelstrom of disruption you know it's and, and no wonder no wonder you're exhausted <laughs> no wonder and, and and we can look at the people who are you know producing really well and i see i do it myself you know i see writers who are having a great time producing loads of stuff and good for them and you know i i i, I, I I don't I don't feel resentful towards them but I do feel inadequate sometimes that I'm not able to do the same and, and it's kind of crazy how we it's very easy to sort of for us to compare ourselves to the the outliers you know whereas all you can do is just t turn up for yourself as best you can and in the end it doesn't really matter how you do compared to other people that's not a Maybe it's a re it's sometimes in some situations it's a reasonable heuristic, but it's not in this one. No, no you're not going to get to the end of the life life and then and then die and then be taken up to the pearly gates and 
see yourself positioned on a ranking table and and, and be admitted into the ever after based upon your position you know like it's there's only there's only one metric really and it's just like are you happy and do you contribute to other people's happiness that's it isn't it and i i and i think in terms of you know our pushing ourselves to kind of grow and expand and find new things you know there's some, some discomfort in that it's not all about like ease and comfort I think that kind of like our desire to seek out comfort is 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 a, is, a, is a protective one and a contracting one, and I think it is often a really toxic and horrible one. You know, like I think you know, comfort is not what we should be moving towards. I think we should be moving towards growth whenever we can. But I think to be able to do that, we have to forgive ourselves. So, yeah, I guess my. My going, my my statement that I'm giving to myself, my kind of like ending thought that I'm giving to myself and I'm giving to you is is just to start with a tiny intervention. You know, think of one thing. Having a cold shower. Doing one set of press-ups or squats or whatever. Um, spending 10 minutes doing a bit of cleaning and time it. Or 10 minutes doing a teeny weeny tiny bit of um free writing you know 10 minutes every day free writing is not a bad thing but you don't even have to think about the everyday it's just now 10 minutes it's one little intervention in your day and see how it just course corrects the whole how it just changes the tone of the day that's what we're looking at it's tiny little interventions that's all we're asking for Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Um, it's been nice to just get on the mic and talk for myself, really. And if you've listened this far, then then I genuinely bless you. Thank you so much for for being here. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to support it, uh, the best way to do that is just to pop onto my coffee page. It's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. Drop me a few beans. It, uh, don't have a sponsor. It just helps... We keep the lights on, lights on, and pay for, you know, basic hosting costs, things like that. Uh, and also, just check out my books, The Honors, and um, The Ice House, which is the sequel to The Honors. People are still reading them and enjoying them, and I, I'm really glad they are because I put a lot of work into them. I think they're gonna, they're cool. And I will let you know, of course, when um, the uh, when my my new book becomes available for pre order. But it's not out until. May 2022, so I think pre-orders are not going to be a thing until next year. Uh, But when that becomes available, then I will let you know. Right, that's it. I hope you're super well. Do write to me and let me know how you're getting on with your writing, or if you've got any questions you'd like me to address in a future episode, you can just go to my website, timclairpart.co.uk. There's a little... uh, contact me button you can click and uh, write to me and let me know uh, and there'll be links to all of that in the show notes of today's episode and finally like because my um my get updating is is a bit erratic you know subscribe please do subscribe to the podcast on itunes or just subscribe via soundcloud and then it'll just or via whatever youtubing app that you not youtubing app um podcasting app that you use and that will mean that you just, you always can be sure you will get a little ping. 
when um when a new episode is up right thank you so much for sticking around uh i hope you have a wonderful week of writing <laughs>